Mark, chapter 14, uh, starting at verse 22. We're going to go on down through verse 26 this morning. Mark 14, 22 through 26. Like most families, my family has, and, and I think enjoys for, for the most part, family traditions. I think that perhaps our gathering at Thanksgiving is my favorite. I mean, it has just about everything. Mashed potatoes, turkey, ham, baked beans, garnished with bacon, of course. If there's not bacon in your baked beans, you're not doing it right. Sweet potato pie, apple pie, pumpkin pie, cobbler, ice cream. You get the idea, lots of delicious treats. I mean, it's got napping and football and coffee and good company. I think one of my favorite parts, though, is our unofficial tradition of telling the same stories over and over and over again, each and every year. I mean, I've heard some of the stories literally a hundred times, and I'll probably hear them a hundred more, right? Like the time I drove the car through a wall in my house. Sister won't let me forget that one. Or the time I I, uh, started a fire on my mother's couch by trying to remove a stain with a blow dryer. I think it was suede, not a good idea, word to the wise. Anyhow, we, we tell stories. And I think we do this because stories have a way of connecting us to the past. Of bringing the past into the present. And reminding us of the importance of family. They have a way of fanning our affections for one another and renewing our sense of belonging. Family traditions like ours are important. Because you see, traditions teach. Traditions teach. And the tradition we step into at this point in the book of Mark is the Jewish feast of Passover. The Passover was aimed at causing the Israelites to remember their past and towards bringing that story of God's rescue of them into their present. In our text today, Jesus and his followers, they're celebrating the Passover together when Jesus will break from the old tradition and start a new one. At this Passover meal, instead of explaining the meal in light of the stories of the past, Jesus will explain the meal in light of the future. He speaks not of the old exodus, but of a new exodus. Not of the old covenant, but of a new covenant. At this Passover meal, Jesus shows how the sacrificial lambs and the deliverance from physical slavery all pointed to this moment. They all foreshadowed the true sacrificial lamb of God. The true rescue of God's people from spiritual slavery. At this Passover, Jesus emphasizes that the stories of Israel's past are like the light of the moon, a reflection of something greater that's temporarily hidden. At this meal, Jesus will bring the sun over the horizon. This meal, and this is our main idea, Jesus reveals himself as the true Passover lamb who dies in the place of his people. Jesus reveals himself as the true Passover lamb who dies in the place of his people. At this meal, Jesus is promising to rescue those who trust in him from death and to celebrate his victory with them in his kingdom. 
my goal this morning is to exhort you to meditate on the meal. To meditate on the meal. Outline is going to look like this. We're going to talk about the Passover tradition, uh, the First Supper, and then our tradition. In the event that I forget to tell you why I titled it the First Supper instead of the Last Supper, I'm just going to throw it out there now. Uh, it's a First Supper in that it's the last time, it's the last meal Jesus will eat. That's why we call it the Last Supper. It's a First Supper in the sense of it's the First Communion. Right? It's the first time the church is gathered and they're breaking the elements as they represent the body and blood of Christ. It's the first of many, and we're going to continue that celebration together today. All right, Passover tradition, the first supper in our tradition. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to listen well this morning to your voice. Pray that I would be the conduit through which you would speak faithfully that all of us together would be changed by your word. You would help us to think clearly, feel deeply, and respond appropriately. We thank you for your goodness to us and the fact that you have called us all here together on this day, at this time, for a very specific purpose. We thank you that we can know right now as we sit beneath the teaching of your word that this is part of our destiny. Father, help us to be faithful. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we spoke briefly about the events in Exodus to which the Passover points. The Passover points back to the Exodus. We talked about how God's justice would fall on every household in Egypt by way of the death of the firstborn and about how God had made a provision for those who would trust in him by way of a substitutionary sacrifice. Remember, justice would fall on everyone except those who took shelter beneath the blood that was put on their doorpost by way of a sacrificial lamb. This week, I want to read a portion of Exodus to us uh, to give us a sense of the gravity of the event of the Passover. And so I'm going to read a lengthy section in Exodus here. Uh, We're going to read from Exodus 12, and we're going to read the first 28 verses together. Uh, I will be reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is a, a little obscure, unless you're in Southern Baptist life, it's like the official Southern Baptist translation, uh, but I like it here, it's a little more simpler, and, and so that's what I'll be reading from, starting with verse 1 of chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's households, one animal per household. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the number of combined people. You should apportion the animal according to what each person will eat. You must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male, You may take it either from the sheep or from the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. They are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it roasted over the fire along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or uncooked in boiling water, but only roast it over fire. 
its head as well as its legs and inner organs. Do not let any of it remain until morning. You must burn up any part of it that does, not, or that does remain so that it does not remain until morning. Here's how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You are to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male on the land of Egypt, both man and beast. I am Yahweh. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day is to be a memorial for you. You must celebrate it as a festival unto the Lord. You are to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statue. You must eat unleavened bread for seven days. On the first day, you must remove yeast from your houses. Whoever eats what is leavened from the first day through the seventh day must be cut off from Israel. You are to hold a sacred assembly on the first day and another sacred assembly on the seventh day. No work may be done on those days except for preparing what people need to eat. You may do only that. You are to observe the festival of unleavened bread because on this very day I brought your divisions out of the land of Egypt. You must observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent statue. You are to eat unleavened bread in the first month from the evening of the 14th day to the month until the, uh, till the evening of the 21st day. Yeast must not be found in your houses for seven days. If anyone eats something leavened, that person, whether foreign resident or native of the land, must be cut off from the community of Israel. Do not eat anything leavened. Eat unleavened bread in all of your homes. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go select an animal from the flock according to your families and slaughter the Passover animal. Take a cluster of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and brush the lintel in the two doorposts of your home. When the Lord passes through to strike Egypt and sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, he will pass over the door and not let the destroyer enter your houses to strike you. Keep this command permanently as a statute for you and for your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give to you as he promised, you are to observe this ritual. When your children ask you, what does this ritual mean to you? You are to reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and spared our homes. So the people bowed down and worshipped. Then the Israelites went and did this. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. If you know the rest of the story, I'm going to summarize it for you here. After they receive all of this instruction, after they obey it, justice falls on those who did not trust in God's provision. And a great cry grows up in Egypt as many mourn the loss of their loved ones. And those mourning included Pharaoh, who finally relented, at least temporarily, and let the people of Israel go. And as the Israelites are headed out into the wilderness and they're leaving, Pharaoh has a change of heart, if you remember. He pursues them, but God thwarts Pharaoh's plans by splitting the Red Sea apart and allowing Israel to pass through it. It's part of their salvation as they pass through the waters. And then he crushes Pharaoh and his army beneath those waters in the Red Sea. 
The, the point here of, of recounting the story and reading the, the first part about the Passover uh, in detail is to show us that the details mattered. They mattered. There's a lot to this meal and to this festival. I mean, there's more instruction in Deuteronomy. The Israelites were to taste the bitterness of the herbs. They were to taste it on their tongues. They were to crunch the bread of affliction between their teeth and to smell the smoke of the sacrifice in their nostrils. This feast was meant to bring the past into their present. The Passover told an old story, and it connected them to the past. It reminded them of the miracles of the wonder-working God and of their commitment to Him. It reminded them of their identity as God's people. The Passover was a family tradition, and traditions teach. During this tradition, they would remember and renew. They would pledge and proclaim. The meal reminded the people of God of His provision for and deliverance of them. In eating the meal, the people made themselves obedient to God's command to them, thus renewing their pledge to serve and to love Him. By eating the meal, they proclaimed God's great power to save. Proclamation which is made explicit in answer to the question of a child in Exodus 12, 26. When your children ask you, what does this ritual mean? You are to reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and spared our homes. This meal is pregnant with meaning. This is the meal that Jesus is eating with friends and family and disciples and his betrayer. I mean, he's already made the evening a little bit unusual by way of washing the feet of the disciples. But what he does next, it's even more shocking. See, the meal had a form to it, a particular pattern that it followed. Tim Keller is helpful here. This is what he writes. The meal included four points at which the presider, holding a glass of wine, got up and explained the feast's meaning. The four cups of wine represented four promises made by God in Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. These promises were for rescue from Egypt, for freedom from slavery, for redemption by God's divine power, and for a renewed relationship with God. The third cup came at a point when the meal was almost completely eaten. The presider would use words from Deuteronomy 26 to bless the elements, the bread, the herbs, and the lamb by explaining how they were symbolic reminders of various aspects of the early Israelites' captivity. For example, he would show them the bread and say, This is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. Jesus was the presider at this Passover meal, with all the disciples around him. And Mark recounts for us what happened when Jesus raises the third cup. This is verse 22 in chapter 14. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said it to them, and they drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now imagine yourself as an Israelite. You've been through the Passover custom dozen, uh, dozens of times. 
right? You've eaten the Passover meal. You know the ebb and the flow of the thing. And now is typically the part where uh, the bread is distributed and, and you eat in silence and in reflection on the bread of affliction, the affliction your forefathers experienced in the wilderness. You're getting ready to reflect and, and listen to uh, nothing but the sound of bread crunching beneath people's teeth. And as you ready yourself to eat and to think and reflect, Jesus interrupts the traditional pattern of the evening. And he describes the bread in a way that's completely different than you have ever thought of it before. Take, this is my body. I mean, this is out of place. It's akin to a a best man standing up at a wedding and talking about how it's his birthday. Right? It's, It's just inappropriate. If anyone other than Jesus says these words, it doesn't make sense. So so what is going on here? Jesus is changing the tradition. He's bringing it to its fulfillment. No longer will the bread represent Israel's affliction, but it will represent his own body that will be broken and afflicted for his people. In describing the elements and their symbolism, Jesus departs from the script that has already been reenacted by generation after generation and shows them the bread, and he says, this is my body. Jesus is saying, this is the bread of my affliction, the bread of my suffering, because I'm going to lead the ultimate exodus and bring you the ultimate deliverance from bondage. I am going to save you out of your slavery to sin. Jesus is moving the focus of the meal from Israel's past. He's placing it on himself. Now, when Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, he's not saying that the bread and wine are literally his blood, right? The elements do not actually become the body and blood of Jesus. They simply represent the body and blood of Jesus, right? He's standing before them. He's not bleeding. He's not dead. Right? He, he's, he's, he's good. He's healthy right there when he says, this is my bread, this is my body, and this is my blood. It, it, it's similar to if I show you a picture of my wife on my phone. Uh, you don't call me a liar. You know, liar! Your wife is not a phone. That's not your wife. No, you, you understand that the picture of my wife on my phone, it's a representation of her. That's the same thing that's going on here. The, the bread and the wine picture the events of the cross. When the church eats them, and and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, when the church takes communion, we are remembering our union with Christ and with one another, and we're pledging our lives to him anew. We're remembering the events of the cross. The meal instituted by Jesus, communion or the Lord's Supper or the, the Eucharist, whatever name you know it by, this meal is meant to point us to the cross where Jesus gives himself as the substitutionary sacrifice for all who trust in him. Note too here that Mark, and I think intentionally so, leaves out any mention of the lamb. Did you notice that? I mean, typically, if you go out for a meal, the, one of the first things I do anyway, if somebody asks me what I had, I don't mention the side dishes, right? I'll say I had some green beans and some, some grits or, or some potatoes. I'm going to tell you I had a steak, right? I'm going to tell you the main portion of the meal, and, and, it, and it's absent. Mark's telling us about the bread and, and about the wine, but he doesn't make any mention of the lamb, which would have been the main course for the evening. I think he does this to further demonstrate 
that Jesus is both the center of the meal, he's the meal's focus, and that he's the true and final Lamb of God. You see, the Lamb on the table is not mentioned because the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, is at the table. He's presiding over the feast. I think Jesus here is lifting the story of Israel's rescue and he's placing it within the Bible's larger story of God's rescue of all of his people. He's showing us, in part, how all the stories of the Bible are really telling one big story. The story of a loving God rescuing people that have set themselves up as his enemies. Jesus institutes this first supper at this last Passover so that his disciples will not only look back to the events of the Exodus, but to the event they foreshadowed. Namely, Jesus dying in the place of sinful men and women under the wrath of God so that we might escape spiritual slavery to sin and enjoy life with God. This first supper of the new covenant, the promise of God to save his people on the basis of Jesus' life and work, it helps us to understand God's mysterious work of redemption. The Lord's Supper, it brings the past and the future together in the present. At this meal, Jesus reveals himself as the true Passover lamb who dies in the place of his people. Look at verse 25. It says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is making a promise here. It's not right away evident, but, but in, the, in ancient times when people said, I'm not going to eat or drink until, and then you fill in the blank, it, it, they were taking an oath. They were making a, a promise. Jesus is saying, I will not eat and drink again until we do it in the kingdom together. You're going to be with me in the kingdom is the promise here. It's an oath that he makes with us, with those that would trust in him, that will be signed, sealed, and delivered with his blood of the new covenant. Jesus is promising that he will triumph over death and that he will celebrate his victory with his people when the kingdom comes in its fullness. I also think that somewhere along the line, there are four cups of of wine, remember, we can assume Jesus drinks this third cup. And I like to think that it's right here after he makes this promise. He says, I'm I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it with you in heaven. And I like to think that that's where he, he finishes that cup. Now, if you're, if, again, if you're keeping track, there are four cups. And you say, what does that mean about the fourth cup of wine? Well, I think that he, he leaves it on the table uh, for two reasons. The, it, one is that he deliberately leaves the meal unfinished, which we'll come to in a second. But the other reason is that the next cup that Jesus will drink is the cup of God's wrath. If you remember, the fourth cup represented a renewed relationship with God. But Jesus, he's, he's headed for Calvary's hill where he will become a curse for us, where he will take the penalty for our sins. And he's about to tell the disciples they can't drink from the cup he's going to drink. It's the cup of God's wrath. Now, traditionally, the the order of the cups would have been you drink the third cup and then you you sing a Hallel psalm 
And then the meal would be concluded by the drinking of that fourth cup. And we see in Mark, they sing the song, and then they go on to the Mount of Olives. There's no uh, drinking of the fourth cup. And uh, Sinclair Ferguson is the one who turned me on to this and suggested that Jesus leaves the final cup on the table. This is what he says. It's as though Jesus deliberately leaves the meal unfinished so that he might cause us to look ahead to the day when he comes and celebrates together with us. Begg says this, and I have a sneaky suspicion that when Jesus comes and when we're all gathered, that Jesus will start the marriage supper of the Lamb by saying, now see, where were we? Ah, the cup. Life, everlasting life. The cup that represents a renewed relationship with God. We are all restored now. Let us drink. Jesus here drinks the third cup of wine, promising to drink the fourth cup with us when his kingdom comes in its fullness. But as we said, between those cups, he will drink the cup of God's wrath. A cup he prepares to drink as they sing a hymn and go to the Mount of Olives. That's verse 26. And when they sung a hymn, they went on to the Mount of of olives. And if you're the curious type, you might be wondering, well, what hymn did they sing? Amazing Grace? Not quite. They were more Baptist, so it was A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Now, neither of those were written yet. The hymns sung at this point were typically uh, psalms, right? The psalms, it was like a, hymn, a Jewish hymn book when we read the psalms. Lots of them are songs. And uh, the Jewish sources we have from the time uh, suggested that the hymn they would sing would come uh, it would have been one of the Hallel Psalms, and it would have come from chapters uh, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. And so at the beginning of the meal, there would be singing throughout. They would start at 113, and they would work their way up. So that the last psalm they typically sang at these meals would have been Psalm 118. Uh, if you're curious about what Hallel means, these Hallel Psalms, it's uh, a word for praise, right? It's a praise psalm. So that's what's in view here, and what was likely sung Uh, here in verse 26. If you're paying attention, this is why we read Psalm 118 together earlier. I want you to, to think for a second. Imagine what it would be like for Jesus to sing this psalm, to sing these words, beginning with the first four verses as he approaches his death. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. And singing on down through verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Friends, this would be the day of his crucifixion. Finishing the song with, you are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Imagine what it must have been like to praise on his way to the cross. I want to help you here a little bit. Imagine you are on your way to your death. 
And you're singing the, the doxology. Everybody knows the words of the doxology. We sang it earlier. Uh, I'm not a good singer, so I'm going to ask you, I'm going to start us. I'm going to ask you to sing it with me and to just close your eyes and imagine you are marching towards your own death. <clears throat> are you ready? I'm not, not a pretty singer again, so need need the help. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. sings on his way to the cross. He sings on his way to die for you and for me. It was his joy to die for us. Jesus has completely transformed the Passover meal. The Lord's Supper is a new meal that rejoices in what Jesus does. The Lord's Supper brings the sinful past and the glorious future together in the celebratory present. The Lord's Supper, it's the church's tradition. It's our tradition. How is this our tradition, you might ask? How do we know this isn't just a description of something Jesus did with the disciples once rather than something prescriptive for us? Well, I think think Luke's account adds an important detail, uh, and then likewise, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 gives us some instruction as it relates uh, to communion. This is what Luke writes in verse 19 of chapter 22. And Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me command to remember. Additionally, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, we're just going to take a snippet, verses 23 through 26, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's clear that the Lord's Supper is for the church. It functions as a means by which we would remember and renew, by means which we would pledge and proclaim. You remember the Lord's covenant with us, sealed in the blood of Christ, that we have been made His. We renew our commitment to Him. We pledge to serve Him and one another. And we proclaim His death. The Lord's Supper pictures and proclaims the gospel. The Lord's Supper is, as Thomas Schreiner writes, hope-inducing and comfort-producing. The meal is communal. It's a family feast. Not to be taken in isolation, but in community. 
It's a communal meal where the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, give thanks for what Jesus did for us. We are a new family that has been forged through the sweat and the blood of the Savior. And we are celebrating together. Communion is communal. It's a family meal. It connects the past and the future together in the present, giving God's people a foretaste of the glories to come. It tells the story of salvation, how the light of the world rescued mankind from utter darkness. This tradition teaches. During this tradition, we remember and renew, pledge and proclaim. This meal reminds us of God's provision for our sin and His rescue of us from death. In eating the Eucharist, we make ourselves obedient to God's command to do this in remembrance of me. Thus we renew our pledge to serve and love Christ and His people. By taking communion, we proclaim God's grace, His wonder-working power, His willingness to save any that will come to Him. Friends, this table is not for good people or great people, but for broken people. It's a table for cowards and thieves and traitors and cheats. It's a table for all who will admit their need of Jesus Christ. It's a table for those who come to Jesus and say, as you lay down your life for me, I lay my life in your hands. Friends, if you are discouraged or downtrodden, this is the perfect place for you. The table of grace. For it is on this meal we meditate and rejoice in the truth that though we rebelled against God's design for life, though we did things according to how we want and what we want instead of what we were made for, even though we've earned death, Jesus Christ stood in our place and took the death and the suffering we deserve so that by faith in Him we might be made new and raised from the dead just as He rose. We together meditate on the meal thank God that he hasn't made us a nice people, but a new people. We thank him that grace is not for those that have life together and do good things and are really good people, but for broken sinners like you and me that have been brought into his family and called his people. I mean, we delight that Peter's words are true for us, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As we participate in this sacred tradition, we renew our vows and pledge ourselves anew to Christ, our King, and to one another. You can think of the Lord's Supper a little bit like an anniversary celebration in which the wedding vows are renewed. In communion, the many are reminded that we are one in Christ, that we belong to one another and to Christ, that we are His body. 1 Corinthians ten seventeen. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. 
John Hammett writes in his book, Biblical Foundations for Baptist Churches, the Lord's Supper should be the supreme occasion when the body renews its love for and unity with one another. Bonhoeffer says in his classic work, Life Together, the fellowship of the Lord's Supper is the superlative fulfillment of Christian fellowship. As the members of the congregation are united in body and blood at the table of the Lord, so too will they be united together in eternity. Jameson comments, By taking the elements, we solemnly signify our faith in Christ and our commitment to Him, confirming our union with Christ and with one another. When we drink the cup and eat the bread, we plot our lives in God's divine drama of redemption. In eating this bread and drinking this cup, We unite ourselves with one another in our local church, but also to all the redeemed everywhere. More to all the redeemed that have ever ate or drank at the Lord's table before us. The bride of Christ together looks back to the divine marriage proposal on the cross and leans forward into the future marriage supper of the Lamb. In this meal, voices from all generations of the church are raised and harmonized together to sing the song of salvation. In taking the Lord's Supper, we proclaim that Jesus has kept His promise to substitute Himself for His people. And that He will keep His promise to celebrate His triumph when His kingdom comes in its fullness. As we come, we get a foretaste of that, a preview. As we mentioned earlier, during the Passover, one of the prescribed questions a child would ask was, why is this night different from any other night? And the host would reply, it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. I think like the child's question, when we come to the table, we do well to ask Why is this meal different than any other meal? And to answer as the host, it is because of what the Lord did for me. Brothers and sisters, meditate on this meal. As we prepare to take the bread and drink of the cup this morning, I think we do well to pray through tears of awestruck gratitude. Jesus, thank you for dying in my place for my sins. Traditions teach. And this meal is our family tradition. Let us remember and renew, pledge and proclaim. Let us rejoice together as we eat the Lord's Supper and experience a foretaste of heaven now.